The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 145. In the United States, one out of every 36 people own a motorcycle. And when you go to South Dakota, that number jumps to one out of every 12. One, two, three. I'll show you Paris in the morning. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is a man who spent three years on a motorcycle crossing five continents, riding to some of the world's most remote places, and who was kind enough to document it all and put it in an amazing book titled Forks, Alan Carl. Alan, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome. Oh, great to be here, Travis. And this is a perfect example, Alan, of practicing what we preach. And what we preach is travel and getting out there and doing it because it has been so hard for the two of us, two travelers, to settle down (laughs) and actually record this podcast. We tried to record it way back in the beginning of October. There were some issues. You were at a crazy conference. We were trying to record it outside. And then for like the last five months, we've been trying to connect. But you've been around the world. I've been around the world. So we're finally here. We are here and we're going to get this podcast down. We're going to get this story shared and we're going to inspire a lot of other people to do what we're doing so we can run into them out on the road. Exactly. And so where are you coming to us from today? Are you finally settled down somewhere for a few days? I I am settled down at least until tomorrow morning when I get on another (laughs) plane, not a motorcycle. I'm in uh, Lucadia, California, which is a little beach community north of San Diego. It's about 72 degrees. The sun is... uh, shining big, and it's gorgeous. Well, that's great. I actually snuck out of Philadelphia before this whole snowstorm that was supposed to rattle the East Coast came. I snuck out. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, looking outside. It's sunny here as well. So we're living the good life here, Boulder, Colorado, and Lucadia, California. And we finally get the podcast going. So Alan, there's so much to unpack about your story. So many cool things you did, so many lessons learned. But start at the beginning, because a lot of people may not have read Forks, they don't know your story. What is this incredible journey that you took and how did you even end up on it? It's an amazing story from the point of view. I think there's hardly anybody that would deny that they've got a dream maybe of traveling the world or or maybe just taking off and, uh, and traveling wherever it is, taking a break from their hectic pace of their normal life. Well, well for me, I've, um, my dream has been to travel uh, around the world and my passions have always been things like writing, photography, and certainly riding motorcycles. But I think most of us, we end up with that pursuit of a career, raising a family, and these kinds of things. Often our dreams and our passions have to take a back seat. So one day I woke up and realized that I uh, was out of a job, unemployed. I had quit the company I'd worked for because my job, frankly, Travis, was unfulfilling. And my marriage, after a year or so of trying to salvage it, counseling, I it, it ended in divorce. So I found myself alone. And most of the times I think what we would do and my reaction was immediately to get another job, 
I don't know if I was going to get another wife right away, but it would be another relationship, right? But it occurred to me is like, what a great opportunity to go ahead and follow my dream and pursue those passions. So these were the forks in the road that I came to that eventually pushed me to do that. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because there's never a perfect time. I mean, looking back, you can say, hey, yeah, of course this made sense. You know, I, I was out of a job. I just got divorced. Perfect time to get up and do what it is that I had wanted to do. But when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't seem perfect because, oh, where's the money going to come from? What if I leave now and I never find someone else? And all these thoughts and doubts. And I think that, yeah, the hindsight is twenty twenty, and And people listening can be like, yeah, well, that made sense for Alan to do it now. But it's hard when you're in it to say this is the perfect time. And that's why sometimes you just have to go and do it. I'm famous for saying people always ask me, well, how, you know, how am I going to know, you know, how do I do something like that? And I always say the toughest part is deciding. The easiest part is doing. Yeah, I mean that and that's completely true. I'm sure when you finally decided to do it, actually getting on the motorcycle and taking off wasn't hard. You knew how to ride a motorcycle. You figured you would just go and let's kind of talk about that because this the journey that you did tell people i guess what it is that you actually did what was this journey that you documented in your book forks you know as i said my dream is to travel around the world so i got on my motorcycle with the goal of going from the ends to the ends of the earth to the top of the world as far as you could ride or drive a vehicle north to the arctic circle to the arctic ocean uh, in alaska and then i turned around and headed to go as far south to the end of the road at the very bottom of South America to a place called Tierra del Fuego, a little community down there called Ushuaia. And from there, I traveled on my motorcycle to the Amazon in Brazil and then shipped the bike over to Africa, went from Cape Town, doing the classic route through Cape Town all the way to Cairo, across the Sinai Peninsula, into the Middle East and into Eastern and Western Europe, and then eventually shipping my bike back here. So it was a total of three years I rode 62,000 miles on a, for those of you who are motorcycle riders, it was a BMW F650 GS Dakar, and I rode that 62,000 miles at five continents through 35 countries. And what I did in the book Forks is I relay the story, I chronicle that amazing motorcycle journey through stories of connection with culture and people, through photographs, I'm a photographer that uh, is amazing great rich photos and through the food the flavors of the local food so each country is represented in a with a recipe that might be the national dish or pretty much a quintessential dish you'd have there and that's exactly what i did i uh, uh eventually returned back to the united states shipped my bike from europe back to baltimore the port of baltimore where i got on that motorcycle for my last ride of this great three-year continuous journey same motorcycle, and I rode it through the United States from basically our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., all the way back to California here, taking only the back roads, no super freeways or highways, interstates. And I not only got to see the rest of the world, but I got to see the back roads of our own country right here. Yeah, an amazing journey. I mean, three years. And I think a lot of people listening would say, all right, like, that was your plan. That was your goal. You did it. But when you set out, you didn't plan on writing a book. You didn't plan on being away for three years. You didn't plan on going to all the places you did. How did that progress? Because what was your plan when you first 
started this journey? Like, what was the thought? I'm just going to get on the motorcycle and go somewhere? Or did you think this might turn into something bigger than I think? My passion was to do the whole world. I thought, well, I'm going to go to 50 countries and uh, and travel 50,000 miles. And I had it all mapped out. I was going to get to Australia. I was going to go through Iran. I was going to go to all places. There, there are, I went to 35 countries. That's a lot over three years. But you know what? There's many places I didn't go. I spent two years researching and planning this trip, Travis. And one thing you have to know as a traveler, you know, those of us listening to the show know that uh, things don't always go as planned. I mean, there's no itinerary. There's no hotels booked. Uh, you're traveling over land. You've got to deal with the bureaucracy of uh, immigration, customs, and, and much more because on a motor vehicle. I ended up not doing exactly what I planned because as I got to other various forks in the road, you know, or the wind was blowing me one way or another, it's like, wow, there's something interesting I didn't even know about. As a goal, kind of the plan was because I, I, I love culture. I love people. I love the natural beauty of our world. As a baseline, I wanted to visit as many UNESCO World Heritage Sites as possible. UNESCO is the you know, United Nations organization that has identified areas of significant historical or natural importance to the world, to our culture, with the act of uh, ultimately preserving them. So I visited some, you know, probably nearly 30 UNESCO World Heritage Sites on my journey. Things like Machu Picchu would be one that's very famous but maybe something not so people wouldn't know would be like the whole city of Sucre, the city center in Bolivia. That's a colonial museum, practically. And the whole city is actually declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So that's those were kind of the, the goals and what drove me to the various decisions and where I go. But again, they did change. And I'll just hear very simply, I was going to travel to Western Africa. I was going to go from Cape Town all the way up through Angola and to, you know, Cameroon, Benin, Togo, Nigeria, all the way through Mauritania and Morocco and then into Spain. But somewhere along the ride as I was in Namibia, you know, traversing the amazing dunes of the uh, Namib Nankluft sand dune park, that I decided that, wow, if I did this, I'm going to miss Egypt and Ethiopia. You know, you got to get some E countries on your list, so I guess. You have to cross <laughs> them off. They're right there. Yeah, so I changed there, and I and, and I never did Western Africa, but I I am so happy because the culture and the experience I had, and even in Sudan, unbelievable. So when you started this journey, what did you imagine would be the biggest obstacle? Did you think it would be physically riding the motorcycle through some of these remote areas, rough terrain? Did you think it would be mentally? Did you think it would be emotionally? Did you think it would be logistically like what were you what did you think? Hey, this is going to be the struggles. And then how did that actually coalesce when you took the journey? Was it what you thought it would be or was it stuff completely different that were the main obstacles that you faced? You know, obviously, our listeners don't know me, but I, I'm a very uh, a positive, open person. I've traveled a lot, not by motorcycle as well. I've visited 62 countries over my uh, life and more on the way. I had less concern with, say, the physical and the logistical from a language barrier, uh, cultural differences. To me, those were challenges I was ready to just grab and back. That's why I was going on this trip. What I focused on and maybe what I worried about from what could be my biggest challenge was really mostly related to the vehicle, the motorcycle. 
you know, what challenges would I have if something broke? You know, what if I get stuck somewhere? And yeah, how do you get the motorcycle out of a situation? So I, you know, really worked hard to try to fit the motorcycle with, with gear that would, uh, you know, bolster its endurance. I really looked at various maps and contacts around the world to say, well, where are there at least sources for BMW motorcycle parts and experience? I also spent a lot of time talking to people that owned the similar motorcycle and asked them, even in, in the domestic environment of the United States, what were the parts that maybe failed or that were vulnerable so that maybe I could just buy some extra spare parts, carry them on the motorcycle. Should I get in a situation somewhere, I've got the parts, I just got to repair it. And certainly the logistics of moving the motorcycle, parking the motorcycle, I, you know, everybody thought for sure. I mean, the, 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 it's funny how when you mention something like this kind of a trip, most people thought I was crazy, especially when they saw the countries I were uh, listening to. They thought for sure I was either going to be ripped, stripped, you know, or killed. Right. Um, and, you know, I didn't really worry about that stuff so much. I worried about, yeah, I don't want the motorcycle to get stolen. So I, I needed to know what would my strategy be to, to make sure that it was, I couldn't tether it, you know, to my ankle. Right. Uh, you know, when I slept at night, but, uh, you know, that, those kinds of things uh, I thought about. And, and I did, you know, wonder how I was going to deal with languages in certain areas, you know, I, again, knowing the, my outward personality and my ability to hopefully break down what could be a confrontational or a difficult exchange with a different culture, different person, different language, that I could bring levity to that situation so that you could take something and diffuse it pretty quickly. Were there any of those situations then, I mean, I'm sure there are over three years, that you found yourself in, these, these situations that you thought, hey, this could happen, or like you said, a lot of people thought, hey, you're going you're gonna to get in some major trouble going through these countries, you know, possibly even injured, killed. Were there any times that you were on this trip that you can remember that, that were a hairy situation that you had to, that obviously you got out of to, to some degree because you're here speaking with us today? So I'm about six months into my journey, Travis, and I ride my motorcycle on the Puente Centenario. It's the Centennial Bridge, where behind me at this point is the country of Panama, and before me is the, my next continent, South America, and just about 80 miles away is the country of Colombia. But I'm not going to Colombia because in all my research, I am told that the State Department and everyone else is a uh, don't go to Colombia. It's a dangerous place. Foreigners are kidnapped, used as pawns, and even killed. And on the uh, State Department's website, it says to uh, U.S. citizens, if you do have to go to Colombia, is to travel within that country only by air, never by road. You know, and I got a motorcycle, right? So I realized as I got there, it's like, what am I thinking? Uh, this is foolish. I'm going to Colombia. So I changed my plan. I go to Colombia. And I have this rich experience, no problems at all. And then I'm about four hours from the border, and I get stopped by policemen. They tell me that I'm um, about to travel through the most dangerous part of Colombia. They warn me not to stop, just drive through. There'll be another checkpoint at the end of this road. So I go through this road, and I don't see a person on it. I mean, the mountains are getting taller, and the cliffs are steeper, and... Uh, the jungle gets denser and denser as I go. And after a couple hours, I go through a series of corners and I see this waterfall. And it's uh, unbelievable 
dropping some 300 feet into this river winding way below. And I am a photographer, Travis. I've got to get a photograph. So I stop to get a photograph. And before I can get off my motorcycle, there are two guys dressed in jungle fatigues holding AK-47 automatic weapons. And I am thinking, where the hell did these guys come from? They uh, bark at me in Spanish, use the points of their guns for punctuation when they ask questions. And I try to tell them about, you know, look at the fucking water. Look at the waterfall. It is so beautiful. Well, the one guy says, you like waterfalls, do you? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, believe me, my, my heart is beating. I can even, I think they can hear it. I'm shaking like a leaf, but I'm just trying, as I said, to fuse the situation. They say there's another jungle in the, uh, I mean, another, <laughs> another waterfall in the jungle. Follow us. And I'm thinking, is that an order or an offer? And if I go, will I ever even come out? You know, I'm on the side of the road in the most dangerous part of Colombia. And one side of me is my motorcycle. It's my ticket to escape. But if I, but if I run, are they going to shoot me, right? And on the other side, I've got these two guys with guns telling me to go to the jungle with them. What would you do, right? So I, I, I'd go with them. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. So I looked into each of their faces searching for some sort of comfort, and I felt something. I had this feeling of calm. So I went into the jungle. But along the way, I take a picture, and the guy gets ahead of me, gets mad, turns around. I try to show him the picture, show him that the camera works, and he takes my camera. And I'm thinking, this doesn't look good now. We keep hiking. Seems like an hour. I don't know how long. And we finally come to a clearing. And in the middle of this clearing in the jungle is a crystal clear pool water. And above it is this waterfall, man. It's like three tears just tumbling down in there. And uh, the guy who has my camera now takes his gun and shifts it behind him and picks the camera up to his eye and he starts taking pictures of me, of the waterfall. And then he hands the camera to the other guy and asks him to take a take picture of both of us. Wow. So, you know, you talk about where I ever scared and uh, were there situations where I thought that was it. I, I thought for sure with my motorcycle sitting on the side of the road, it's going to be gone when I get there if I ever even get out of the jungle. People don't know I'm going to Colombia, so everyone's like, "Where did we last saw Alan? He was in Panama." That could have been a dicey situation right there. But I walked out, out of the jungle with my camera and uh, bid those guys farewell. And all was well. You got out of there. You you got through Colombia, and everything was okay. That's right. Wow. I mean, obviously you were scared, and of course you had reason to be scared. You didn't know what was going to happen. But it is amazing to me in the travel that I've done and talking with you know tons of travelers who have come on the show and people I've met who have found themselves in dicey situations that a little bit of, I don't know how to say it, a kindness maybe or a little bit of showing vulnerability in yourself goes a long way. I think maybe, and, and I could be wrong, but if you had acted like a tough guy, things could have gotten pretty bad. But they, they could probably see that you were scared that you really were just... Someone who loved this waterfall wanted to get a picture, and it worked out. As frightened as I was, I had some Spanish in my uh, vocabulary at this point. So when I explained to him about the waterfall, I was very animated, as I usually am. And I just said, oh, wow, la cascada, king creeble, you know. And, and I think they just thought, this guy is crazy. And I'm not. You know, you, you, you need to use the skills you have as humans 
and your ability to connect and that I'm looking at this is how I'm going to connect with this person is to number one, at least speak some of the language. Number two, to explain that my motivation here is to enjoy the beauty of the country. Okay. And that, yes, I am vulnerable and they got nothing to fear from me because number one, you know, here, here's what I like. You know, if, if you go into any situation, whether you're in business, your personal life, or your adventure traveling around the world, if you go and look for what's bad and what's wrong with it, Boy, you'll find it. But if you go out and look for what's right and what's beautiful, I guarantee you'll find that. So attitude is the number one thing that is going to give you the tools and experiences to get through any situation. Don't don't look at this as bad. I mean, yes, that was bad. There's two guys with guns, okay, and I've been warned already. There's no question. But what are you going to do? I'll give you another quick story, Travis, is I'm in Bolivia. We haven't shared this because as I explained to people my route, they don't know that there was a little bit of an interruption in, uh, in my ride through the world. I'm on a muddy dirt road 300 miles from the middle of nowhere. It had rained the night before. It's very slippery and muddy. I go through a tiny settlement of about 50 people, and my rear wheel of the motorcycle slips out from under me. I fall into this mud, and my motorcycle, which weighs about 400 pounds, and I'm carrying about 200 pounds of all my earthly belongings, falls on top of me, crushes my leg, breaks it into three pieces. There's no phones. The cell phones don't work. Here I am lying in the mud in the middle of nowhere. My motorcycle's laying on top of me. It's, I know my leg is broken. I, I know it. And what do you do? Cry? Well, yeah. I mean, I was pretty upset. It hurt like a mother. But diffuse that situation. I had Medivac insurance, in fact, which, which I recommend, you know, to anybody traveling, you know, because there can be problems with your health. So I thought, well, it's a good thing I have it, except uh, I can't even contact them. So it took like three days before I could get out of Bolivia. I finally got transported. It was about 24 hours worth of flights because uh, where I was, is impossible to get out of there. And, and that's another situation. You know, okay, it's, it's bad. My trip is in the middle of the trip. Um, it's over. I mean, I can't get back on the motorcycle. But I leave my motorcycle in Bolivia, Travis, which takes a little bit of a leap of faith. And I head back to have surgery, you know, in California. They put rods and screws in my leg. I got to work hard to get my leg and my strength back. And I got to return to Bolivia to retrieve my bike and continue my journey. But most of my friends and people that were following me, they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry about your trip ending. What are you going to do now? Well, I knew then, as I always did, you know, I don't start something just to quit and not finish it. So I did go back, and my bike was still there. And I continued for another two and a half years. So in that situation, right after you broke your leg and you were laying there, what happened before you actually got medevaced out? Like, was it the people of the village who ended up taking care of you? Or did you lay in a ditch for 48 hours? How did that, because how did that work itself out? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question, you know, and I can go on and on with these great stories. But what I'm in, I'm in the mud. It's, it's in, I'm at about 15,000 feet high in the Andes in the Altiplano. So the, the brutal sun, it's beating down on me. It is, you know, not necessarily cold, but it's that high altitude sun. And, you know, I've got very fair skin. So, you know, that, that can be very dangerous. So I still got my helmet on. I've got the visor. It's got this dark shield so that when you are traveling, you know, it's like sunglasses. I'm, I'm there. I, I'm lying in the mud. I'm literally in pain. 
going into shock and I'm wondering what am I going to do? And I'm, I can't really see anything because I'm staring up there, but I sense that a crowd is gathering around me. So I finally open up the visor of my helmet. But right before I do that, I hear these sounds like, and an umbrella popped open. And then I hear another one, another umbrella opens. And I lift that visor up and there are these two boys, probably 10 years old, standing above me, holding umbrellas, shielding me from that brutal sun. And meanwhile, Communicating in my Spanish and the best that I can do, the, the townspeople motivate. I was lucky enough at this point to be traveling with another motorcyclist. His name is Jeremiah. He actually lives in Colorado. He's already, you know, he's past me. He doesn't even know what happened. Well, when he finally comes back, he sees uh, there's a crowd gathering around. Where's Alan? I'm lying in the mud. We, can, we get somebody with a local person with like a truck, like a pickup truck. They throw him in the back of this pickup truck and take me to a, a room in and, and a quote-unquote medical clinic. It's just a concrete building with a couple beds and some Band-Aids. From there, it's now working with the locals to figure out how they can get me from this remote town to the closest city. And, and that's exactly what we did. It, it took, I, could, I didn't even get out of there until about 12 hours later. Then when I get to the city, it's a matter of two days before the medevac company could figure out how to get me there. I was in Potosi, Bolivia. It's the highest city in the world. That's so high, it's you know very difficult to fly an airplane in and out of. And even though there's an airport there, it, it's, it had never been opened because of the dangers and the people there are too poor to pay. So they built this grand airport and nobody there. But eventually, the medevac company figured out how to get a plane into that, you know, a little tiny Cessna. That's what they got me in. And I got pictures of this on the website. And it's in all these situations, even in the situation in Colombia with the gorillas, in the situation when you've got these people in this village, the most important thing you have to trust is not only those people, but your gut, your instinct. And if you don't have a good sense and, and in touch with your, in, your gut and your instinct, and you have the confidence to trust that, these experiences could really stress you out. They really could put you in a bad situation. So... You read all the guidebooks and they can tell you all the things you need to do, but your gut is going to tell you the best thing. So during this whole trip, then you, you have this time where you break your like Most people assume you're going to quit, that it's over. Did you ever think that it was over or from the very beginning when it happened, you know, were you saying, well, I'm just going to be coming back to Bolivia? Like, like it's a no brainer. Yeah, I'm going to get these rods in my leg. I'm coming back to Bolivia. Or did you think for a while? Yeah, you know, this is this is crazy. Like I, I'm risking my life out here. Why am I doing this? Like, was there a time that you almost quit? Was it this time? Was there maybe another time that you just, you got to a point where you thought, yeah, I'm done. I knew always, there's no way I'm not a quitter. I was going to do this. My mindset was there. Even though I came back to the States for many months, I was still on my trip during that time. In my mind, my planning, my continued research you know, there's the old adage, you know, you would eat from lemons, you make lemonade. I'm back in the States. I've got to recover. But it also gives me a chance. Wow, let's see. what This is an opportunity. What during the initial six months of my trip was I missing? What, did, you know, was there certain gear? Were there certain things I might have wished I had? Now I'm back in civilization. Wow, let's regroup. So I looked at it as a chance to regroup. Now, I will tell you that after I, when I went back to... Bolivia to retrieve my motorcycle to get back on it and continue my ride and take those crazy nasty roads in Bolivia 
Well, the first day back, I realized I had all my stuff. I had my motorcycle. My leg was strong, but my confidence at this point was weak because I hadn't been on a motorcycle in more than six months. The last thing I wanted to do is get back on that bike and take that same road again. But I had to take that road. I had to go back there. So what I do is I decide that I'm going to warm up, you know, get a good road, get my confidence back. So I look at the maps and I look at Bolivia and I'm in Sucre, which is the UNESCO World Heritage Site I mentioned. It's also the de facto capital of the country. And I look at the largest city, Santa Cruz de la Serra, and I realize, wow, there's the capital. There is the commerce, the industrial, the banking center of the country, the biggest city. And I figure, okay, well, I'll take the road between those cities. That'll be good and smooth, and I can get my eye on my kinks earned out. Well, it was a great road, Travis, for about an hour, and then it turned to dirt, mud, sand, rocks, nasty. And on a motorcycle with no confidence, we finally come to this river. And this river has got no bridge over it. And the only way you can get across it is to ride through it. And it's rocks and slippery mud and nastiness. And I'm thinking at that point, oh, my God, I can't do it. I'm shriveled. My confidence is just not there. So I beat myself up a minute, but then I go through the river and I get down. And just about 10 feet from the other side, my rear wheel just starts spinning, spinning, spinning. It can't get any traction in the mud and my bike slides out again from under me. I get tossed into the river. Everything's okay. The bike is a little smashed, but I'm like, ah, first day back. I'm crashed and I'm in the mud. Well, you think that's not bad. This road continues. It's the major road. It's probably 300 miles or less but it takes three days because you can't go fast. It's a nasty road. Regroup a day in Santa Cruz de la Serra. Now I'm ready. I've got my confidence back, and I'm going to go on that road to the Salar de Uni, a place that uh, I'd always wanted to see, Salt Flat in Bolivia. For the first hour leaving Santa Cruz, it's the city traffic. It's morning. It's, you know, it's a big city. And then finally we come to a bridge, the river, at least with the bridge this time. But it's a one-lane bridge. And it's got railroad tracks running down the middle of it. It's long. It's about a kilometer long, longer than a half a mile. And it's dilapidated. You know, there's missing planks that are just wide enough for a motorcycle tire that could slip through. You know, oncoming traffic has to go. You have to wait. And then when traffic stops, then you can go because only one car can go across at a time. You know, uh, one lane of cars. Well, I finally get cleared to go across this uh, bridge. It's one lane. And I get my motorcycle going. There's gusty winds that try to push me into these gaping holes and it's, uh, you know, going, I'm steady on the throttle. And then right as I'm almost getting to the end of the bridge, I see that the, the railroad tracks go one way and the bridge goes the other way. And I'm riding between the rails. The only way is I've got to figure a way. I either got to, yeah, I, I try to jump the rails. I goose the throttle, lift up in the handlebars. The front tire washes out on the rail. My bike smashes down with me in it drags me off the bridge and pounds me into the pavement on the other side. And it's at that point, you know, my engine's still running. The rear wheel is still turning, still in gear. My leg at this point, the same leg that I'd broken is in pain. I fear I've broken it again. I want to cry at this point, Travis. I believe that Bolivia has just beaten me. And that is it. I mean, I thought to answer your question, I know it's a long way, but I am done. This is freaking ridiculous. I crashed in the mud two days before. 
I'm now here. I've only been back in Bolivia for three days. I can't even get out of this country. How the heck am I going to get around the world? I get back to Santa Cruz. They x-ray my leg, and it's just a really bad sprain, but I've got to stay off of it for three weeks. It's my left foot, so it's the one that I have to shift gears and it's, I mean, just to even wiggle a toe is in pain. So I can't get back on that bike. So there I am again, stationary. When am I going to get out of here? Well, I do, Travis, get back on that bike three weeks later. I get back on that road and I get to the Slardia Uni, the salt flat, and I finally cross the border into Chile and continue that journey. Perseverance, you got to just bite it through, man, which I did. So you have Bolivia on your, I'm sure it's on your list of, <laughs> you know, countries that I, I guess love-hate relationship with, right? I mean, it, it was it was killing you. Were there any other times or countries or places that you were in that either kind of stick in your head as being amazing for what you saw, what you did, or also being amazing for just being super hard, super challenging, but it helped build up? you know, the whole adventure. It helped build up your confidence. It helped build up your mental strength, all that kind of stuff. Are there a few places that you really think of when you think back on this journey? There's always challenges that I can go through. I, I, I had a really hard time in, in rain in Brazil. Terrible. You know, you think about riding a motorcycle. It's not like getting on a bus or getting on a plane. And, you know, you, you hear about plane accidents and buses running off cliffs and things like that. You, you know, you don't, you're not in control of that. But on the motorcycle, you're in control. You have to make your own decisions. Is it right to ride? Do I wait like a day to let the rain clear or, or whatever it happens to be? You know, you're in control. You can stop when you want. You can meet people that are just cruising on the side of the road to try to learn their story. There were a lot of times where I could just stop. But in Brazil, in this rain, I couldn't go as as far as I was hoping this one day. And the distance, the space between the two cities I was going, there's nothing there. I could either wild camp, but the rain's pouring. And the last thing I want to do is set up a tent in the rain. So I keep trugging on as the sun goes down. And one of my rules and motorcycle rules when you travel outside the United States is to never travel at night. You can't see wild stock. They're constantly grazing or crossing the highway. There's unmarked obstacles in the road. Sometimes bridges are out. They don't even tell you. You know, so being in the dark where you can't see is just very dangerous. So here I am. It's dark. I can't see. And I'm just trying to get to Maceo. It's a, a, a city on the coast of Brazil. And um, going through these hundreds of miles, it seems, of eucalyptus uh, orchards. They grow this here to make ethanol for fuel. And big trucks are working 24 hours a day, harvesting, pulling these harvested eucalyptus trees. And they are like sometimes three, you know, we've seen those uh, tractor trailers on our highways that are two long. They have three long ones. And they're sometimes they don't even have signal lights or reflectors on the back of them. You don't even know if you're in the dark, you could run right into them. But also they're carrying all this eucalyptus and this stuff is getting wet and soggy from the rain. And, you know, they don't strap it down that well, so there's debris on the road all the time. And if you know what a eucalyptus leaf is, looks like when it gets wet and it's on a slick surface on pavement, if you come around a corner and hit that, you're going you're gonna to slide out there like a banana peel. I am so stressed riding, and I'm wet, and I can't see the rain's pounding on my windshield. You don't have windshield wipers on a motorcycle, let me tell you, okay? So you've got to kind of constantly wipe with your finger your, 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 your screen and try to get some sort of sense. And it's dark. They don't have those nice white lines on the side of the road so you know where the road ends. 
you know, you easily could go around a corner and just fall off into these eucalyptus orchards. So it's stressful. I remember that. I remember being in Sudan in a sand road and I, you know, riding a, a motorcycle in sand as heavily loaded as I have it is just a recipe for constant dropping the motorcycle. And I dropped and crashed that motorcycle. And every time I did in Sudan, my motorcycle is too heavy to lift up, particularly here in the desert, the Nubian desert. It's 105, 110 degrees. I, I, I could pick it up once, the second, third times, I fourth, every time. I just waited. And sure enough, some guy with a camel would show up. And he helped me get that bike back up, and I'd travel for another quarter mile until I couldn't hold the bike up any longer, and I'd crash again. After about the fourth time, then one of these guys with the camels comes up to me, and he says, I'm like, come and you help me lift my bike. And he says, mister, me think you need camel, not motorcycle. <laughs> This ends part one of my interview with Alan, but don't worry, there's plenty more great stuff coming. Once Alan and I were finally able to connect, we couldn't stop talking. Surprise, surprise. And so we split this interview into two awesome episodes. In part two, Alan talks about how he knew it was time to end the journey, what life was like when he came home and what the biggest surprises were how and why he fought the big book publishers and yet still got his book published through a unique Kickstarter campaign that's just as interesting as the journey itself and how a pack of M&Ms almost derailed his entire trip. So you won't want to miss all that great stuff. It'll be coming out on Thursday. Or if you're listening to this at a later date, of course, you can jump right into episode two. You can get that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods or on iTunes, Stitcher, or however you're listening to this podcast. If you want more information about Alan, head on over to his site, ForksTheBook.com, and check out all the stuff that he has going on over there. Don't forget, also, if you want to keep up with everything at EPOP, you can sign up for our free newsletter. You can also get a free copy of my guide, 20 Ways to Save Money When Traveling, by heading over to ExtraPackOfPeanuts.com slash free. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today, for the ongoing support that just continues to make this podcast grow and grow and grow, and for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in to part two of my interview with Alan, and until next time, happy free travels.